all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. You're listening to a podcast of Relatively Speaking on MPB Think Radio. To your previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. From MPB Think Radio, this is Relatively Speaking, the show all about you and your family. I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Today is World Suicide Prevention Day. One of the most devastating events that can happen to a person is to lose a loved one to suicide. There's been a lot of attention to the topic, but the rate of suicide has increased by 30% in the last 20 years. Why is that? What can we do to stop losing those we love to this hopeless act? Today, we'll talk with an expert about the warning signs and how to take action. Let's talk about what's going on in your life. You can share your comments and experiences with us this morning by calling one eight seven seven. MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can send an email to family at mpbonline.org. This is relatively speaking from MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Good morning and thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Susan Buttress and today we're talking about a tough but a really, really important topic, suicide prevention. So today, September 10th, is World Suicide Prevention Day. Um, The entire month is dedicated to suicide prevention, uh, the entire month of September. So this is one of the most devastating events that can happen to a person. Losing a loved one to suicide, it seems like an incredibly hopeless act. And why does it happen? And I know that many of you listeners, I know many of us, have all uh, had been affected by someone who committed suicide. There's been a lot of attention to the topic But the rate of suicide has increased by 30% over the last 20 years. So what in the world is happening? How can we stop losing those people that we love? Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Monica Sutton on some ways that we can take action um, to this topic and um, what we can do to prevent it. We're supposed to spend a whole month talking about prevention. Obviously, a month alone is not enough time, but this is a time to increase the uh, awareness. According for the Centers for Disease Control, suicide rates now each year account for more than 41,000 individuals, leaving behind their friends, their family members to navigate the tragedy of that loss and I have been there I've been there with friends I've been there with a family member it's a terrible thing and and honestly 
um, according to me and according to many, you, you never completely recover from that. So, Dr. Sutton, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Dr. Sutton is a professor of pediatrics and psychologist at the Center for the Advancement of Youth. And we've worked together for many years. I know that she is an awesome resource <laughs> for for us. And I'm really excited about having you here today to help us navigate through this really important topic. Yes, I'm glad to be here. It is definitely an important topic. So um, there's some things that we probably need to talk about first to kind of lay the groundwork. But listeners, I know many of you, like I said at the outset, have been affected by suicide in your family or with a friend, someone you loved, maybe even a child or a parent. Um, we'd like to hear from you, like to hear your stories. Um, I know that many times those of us who have had something happened like that to someone um, close to us, we tend to start introspecting on what happened. How did I miss it? Why couldn't I stop it? Um, And so I'd like to hear your stories, but also this is not, this show today is not to impart any kind of guilt on anyone that needs to be gone that is of no use. This is to talk about what we can do from this happening again. Um, give us a call to join in at one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, or you can send an email to family at mpbonline dot org. So a couple of things. Research has found that more than half of the people, about fifty four percent who died by suicide, did not have a known mental health condition. So we might say, well, you already can predict who who is going to do it, because if they're depressed or if they're anxious or if they have bipolar disorder and they have that diagnosis, then they're the ones. That's obviously not true. It may be that these people are depressed or anxious or have bipolar or some other issue that's ongoing with them. They may have been horribly bullied or something terrible may have happened to them, but you may not know it. They may not have talked about it. So so what this show about is about today is for us to keep in mind those 46% who, um, who are um, that rather those 46% of individuals that already have identified mental health illness, yes, are at a little higher risk. But then what about that 54% who don't have anything yet identified? We need to start looking for signs, the risk, the issues that may be there. So, Dr. Sutton, why don't we start by talking a little bit about some of those risk factors that make an individual perhaps a little more likely to be um, having suicidal ideation, those suicide thoughts. Okay. Some of those, uh, the risk factors are exposure to violence, Mm -hmm. bullying, um, experiencing a traumatic event, even natural disasters, which we've seen quite a bit of lately. 
in our uh, society and and also mental illness. Those are some of the probably more common risk factors. Right, that prolonged stress. Mm-hmm. So what you were just talking about is that repeated exposure to right. violence or mm-hmm. those terrible events that that keep ongoing. Now there are a lot of people who who experience violence, um, domestic violence or um, other violence um, about them, the bullying, who don't seem to be. Um, put on the pathway toward that such significant issues that they move towards suicide. Um, are there a couple of other things that that perhaps put individuals at higher risk? Why do some um, people move to that and some don't? Some don't have quality resources mm-hmm. or connectedness with family or communities and for those individuals they may you know kind of lose sight of of the path that they want to take so having being connected is a is a really big key to helping individuals um not think about suicide right you know even uh in a couple of situations that I know personally, um, there were those resources. There were family members there who were trying. There were individuals who really, really wanted to intervene, who felt like something was going on. And so um, why don't we talk about some of the other things that can enhance that risk. I know family history of a suicide that has happened uh, increases the risk significantly, right? Having another family member, a father, a brother, a mother who committed suicide increases the risk, right? That definitely uh, increases the risk, but also stigma Mm -hmm. related to seeking help. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of individuals out there who are hurting who are suffering and they're afraid to seek help because of judgments they think may be placed on them because of how they're feeling or what they may be experiencing. A sign of weakness, feeling like it might be a sign of weakness. Yes. You know, I I think in our society, unfortunately, for men, um, many times, if if a man is tearful or depressed or cries or feels like they can't move on, then then it's like, well, what's wrong with you? That term, just man up, just do it. You know, right, I, right. I think so many times that we just put people on the wrong pathway. And then sometimes um, when you feel sad, we were just talking about this uh, before the show, many people turn to substance use or abuse when they feel bad. So turn to to alcohol or or other illicit drugs or uh, misuse of prescription drugs. And that even puts you at higher risk for suicide, right? It does. It puts you at higher risk because you never really get to the core of what's going on. Right. You never really work on the issue that led you to use that as a choice or as a coping strategy. So it's like a a never-ending cycle. You're just continuing to reach for ineffective ways of coping or ineffective uh, treatment strategies. Right. 
And so today we hope to talk about how how to move toward if there are symptoms or problems then what to do so that you don't just mask by intoxication or substance abuse of of other sort. You don't just mask the symptoms, but you really learn how to deal with them and to get to the core. I like right. what you said. Mm-hmm. So, listeners, we'd love for you to call in, tell us your stories, let us know what is going on in your life, um, or if you have a history of suicide in your family and how you were able to come around the other end, give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can send an email to family at mpbonline.org. This is Relatively Speaking. I'm Dr. Susan Buttress with Dr. Monica Sutton. We'll be right back. podcast. Welcome back and thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Susan Buttress and I'm here with Dr. Monica Sutton. Today we're talking about suicide prevention. This is Suicide World Suicide Prevention Day. September is a month dedicated to suicide prevention. The incidence continues to rise. We have got to figure out a way to put a stop to it. So today we're talking about signs, symptoms, what we can do, how we can help those who are feeling hopeless. So what I'd like to do is go on to the phones. We have a couple of callers. Uh, we want to hear from you. We have other open lines. You can give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. All right. Well, let's go on. We have Philip in Natchez. Hi, Philip. Thanks for calling. Good morning. I just wanted to share with you that this is 40 years ago, but... You never forget this kind of tragedy, but I was in law school with a good friend of mine, and he was taking summer classes, and over the weekend, he was accused of a relatively minor offense. He was accused of stealing quarters from a change jar. Wow. Uh And they told him that he had to face the committee on Monday didn't tell him what the possibilities were. He wrote his parents, he wrote his girlfriend, he said he always wanted to be a lawyer. He couldn't think of himself as being anything else, and he was going to lose that opportunity. He bought a gun and killed himself before the Monday hearing. As a result of that, the school changed their policy and said that if anyone was accused of anything, they would go to them, they would advise them what the possibilities were that this wasn't the end of the world. And that certainly helped people after this person with this feeling of utter 
hopelessness that nothing is ever going to be any better is what caused him to kill himself. Wow. That's a tough story and such a minor incident. But, um, Dr. Sutton, that is sometimes what can be the the trigger, right? And if your brain is such that you are going to spiral down and think about the worst-case scenario, maybe you feel hopeless. Yes, that's exactly what happens. Sometimes we don't know. We see individuals and we think they have their lives together and they look like they're can handle just about anything, but sometimes people um, don't have the best coping skills, and we're not really aware of that. And they may walk around with a sense of hopelessness, and it may only take a minor mm-hmm. incident in their lives to kind of shatter all of that. And it's hard to understand why something that we think was so small may have led to that. But that individual, of course, knew other things that were going on in their lives and maybe just had not shared or connected with anybody. Philip, Mm -hmm. I have a question. Was this individual, um, was he one who seemed like he was a depressed guy or someone who seemed overly anxious or uh, were there any other indicators that perhaps he was struggling well, I, I think there were. Um, he was always a good student until he got to law school, and he faced a situation where everybody that was in school mm-hmm. were good students. And so he, he was frustrated mm-hmm. and depressed about the kind of grades he was making. And then he decided to go to summer school so that he could uh, improve his grade point average, but instead... It was not improving, but again, what the school didn't tell him was that in this situation, they said he would have been suspended for a semester and allowed to come back. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I guess my concern is is that if someone is depressed and if you notice their depression, I think one of the things we need to make sure they understand is that they're there is help and that things are not as hopeless as they seem. Absolutely. That's the connectedness we were talking about um, earlier is, and we also need to listen non-judgmentally. Right. That's very important for people who are struggling. Yeah. I think just to, to listen sometimes and, and not say, oh, that's so silly. That's yeah. a crazy thought. Why would right. you think that? Mm-hmm. Um, to, to just listen and say, I can see you're really struggling. You're really stressed. How can I help right. is a better way to uh, deal with that. But, but Philip, you're, what you're pointing out is that what seemed like a relatively minor incident was probably just sort of that straw that that right. just broke him. Yeah. yeah. And so he'd already uh, struggled. And I, I think there are many of us out there who get in an, into a situation that you thought you were all prepared for and then you feel like you're not. Um, and then so how do you how do you get yourself um, out of that proverbial ditch I always talk about. Um, and sometimes it, you need a handout, somebody who puts their hand out to give you that hand up. 
uh, to be able to make a difference. So, um, Philip, thank you for starting us off. I think that pointed out, you know, that could have been something preventable. One, and now I think schools do so much of a better job of if there is a student struggling in school that they they reach out to them and try to give them the support. And um, and I would Im- implore all of you to do the same, that if you see somebody who looks like they're struggling in an area, let them know you're there to help. All right. Thanks, Philip, and I'm sorry that you had to deal with that. And like I said at the outset of this show, 40 years ago and still in your mind, you still remember it. So the suicide has a ripple effect. It affects um, those who are closest to it the most severely, but it can ripple out to hundreds of people, right? It can. You know, while suicide is actually rare, Statistically, mm-hmm. if you think about mm-hmm. it, and and I mean, and that's all uh, in the data, but the human impact is so far-reaching mm-hmm. that it, you know, it stays with us, and we still years later are trying to answer those questions why. about why, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's stay on the phone, and um, we have Ann down in Biloxi. No, in yeah, Biloxi or Gaucher, one of the two. <laughs> Gauthier. Hi, Ann. Hi. I'm in Gauthier. Gauthier. Um, well, thanks for calling. I wanted to uh, bring out another aspect of suicide. My dad took his life when I was six years old. And as a child, I didn't have the emotional maturity nor the help process what this meant and so in my child's mind I took it to mean that if I had somehow been a better child Mm -hmm. my dad would have chosen not to leave me Mm -hmm. and so I think it's so important for anyone really but especially children to receive counseling when a close family member or close family friend takes their life. You're absolutely correct. That's one of the things we were mentioning earlier about uh, traumatic events. Experiencing those traumatic events could put you at risk or just, you know, complicate the way you view life. And we routinely at, I know, the, the Center for Advancement of Youth and many other organizations use an approach called trauma-focused therapy where we actually focused on the trauma and help you create your narrative and tell your story. And as you're doing that, we help you work through it and develop those coping skills that you need because you need different coping skills at different developmental stages in life. When you're six, when you're, you know, an adolescent, when you're an adult. So it, it can be a a long-term uh, process for some individuals, but you're you're absolutely right. Excellent point. Yeah, and um, at at what age were you when your father committed suicide? I was six, mm-hmm. and I became a very angry little child mm-hmm. until I really got into my college years and received counseling to understand what I was feeling and why I was acting out. 
I'm 74 years old now, and I still miss my dad and all the things that he missed. Right. Right. And, you know, part of the grief process is, like you said, that anger, that just absolute fury of how could they do that to me. And then the other thing that often happens in families is that other family members are blamed, perhaps your mother for not making your dad, quote, happy enough or whatever. Mm -hmm. Those kinds of feelings are out there. And, you know, nobody knows the whole backstory of what really has gone on. But how important that's that's one reason that we're talking today about this, the addressing this. um, I'm sorry that you had to wait until you were in college before you received the appropriate counseling, because it is so very important to deal with it um, at the time and on an ongoing basis, because it really is one of those things that stays with you forever. But yes. to be able to work through that it was not your fault, you know, yes. and, and it was it was an illness and it's it's something that um, happened due to perhaps an unaddressed illness, but sometimes um, an unknown, not so much not unaddressed, but an unknown and I, I do think, um, I'm going to say it again, women certainly are at risk for suicide, too. Um, it happens. But but I'm going to say it again. I think so many times in our society still, we we tend to, to make it so that men feel that they can't share their vulnerabilities. And... Um, And so what we need to do is let everybody know if you're sad, feeling vulnerable, feeling anxious, need help, need a hand, that it's okay to ask for it. And um, and it's important for those of us who, if we see issues, to to reach out to others. So, all right. We have have come so far. Yes. This happened, of course, in the early 50s, and a lot of uh, mental health issues were not known or addressed as they are today. We have a long way to go, but we've come a long way, too. We have, Anne. Well, thank you so much for your call. We're talking about suicide prevention. This is Relatively Speaking, and we'll be right back. Keep that hunger. May you never take one single breath for granted. God forbid love ever leave you empty-handed. I hope you still feel small when you stand beside the ocean. Whenever one door closes, I hope one more opens. Promise me that you'll give faith the fighting chance. And when you get the choice to sit it out or This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back, and thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, here with Dr. Monica Sutton, and today we're talking about 
suicide prevention. What can we do to try to make sure this doesn't happen again to you, to anybody that you love, to make sure that whatever we can do to help is recognized early on. Um, So we've been talking a, a bit about some of the signs and symptoms and, and what happens, um, you know, a history of trauma or abuse, prolonged stress. Um, people under the age of 24, above the age of 65, and chronic illness are all issues. So we'll talk a little more about chronic illness a little bit later in the show and how sometimes people will feel hopeless in that arena. But um, let's go on back to the phones, and let's see. Um, is our next caller, I'm not seeing a name, are we at line? We have Robert, okay? Robert in Oxford on line one. Hi, Robert. Thanks for calling. Oh, is that, that me? Robert? Well, this is Mike. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, Mike, are you in Oxford? I'm in Madison. <laughs> I'm sorry, Mike. Okay, Mike in Madison. You were next in line, and I think Robert is probably on hold. So, okay, um, we have a little phone crossing going on. But, Mike, tell us about what what your experience or maybe questions are. Oh, uh, I used to work uh, with you, Dr. Butters, at UMC. Uh, but, you know, Working with people, uh, you you get to know that stress tends to magnify small things, and stress can make folks lose perspective on uh, on the big things and the little things in life. So sometimes those small things in there, you know, they can grow to seem to be insurmountable. Uh, so if folks can just reach out to someone that they trust that has perspective. And I I think a lot of uh, families rely on older people for that. Um, And hopefully older people still have some of that respect that they used to have about life experience. But somebody that that folks who get stressed out can reach out to uh, uh, someone with more perspective in life and say, look, uh, this is bothering me. And um, and maybe it can be put in. Uh, or help somebody to put it in proper perspective so that it doesn't grow to this overwhelming level to them. Really good point. You know, Mike, um, in in almost everything I do, when we look at what helps most uh, individuals who are in trouble, whether that's a child who's been through adverse life, life events or or an adult, the, the, the most outstanding factor that is the most helpful to individuals is to have one person, that one person that they can reach out to, that one individual who is that support. And that is a good indicator of why some people are more resilient than others. It's not just intrinsic in their personality but it's the fact that they've had some some sort of good firm support and it doesn't have to be a lot of people it doesn't have to be a two-parent family it might not even be a parent who is that individual but it might be a co-worker it might be a teacher it might be you know a band director it right 
Absolutely. We need to have someone to reach out to and talk to because stress, no matter how big or how small, can have strong lingering effects. And individuals have to um, feel like there's hope, that there's help. And it's one thing that I always encourage my parents to help their children with is to identify somebody other than them that they trust, that they can talk to and express whatever uh, issues they may be having. So that's that's an excellent point, Mike. Thank you. Thank you. I, mm-hmm. I enjoy your show. Appreciate what you do. Thank you, Mike. Thanks so much for calling. Okay, well, we'll stay on the phone, and now we'll get to Robert in Oxford. Hi, Robert. Hi, how are you doing? Great. Thanks for calling. Talk to us about what your thoughts are. I'm a retired physician, and um, the thing that I found to be the most successful in suicide prevention was getting the guns away from people because people were so successful in attempting to kill themselves with guns as opposed to other techniques, and I think the statistics bear that out. But what I was, my question is about is, you know, a lot, there are a lot of uh, statistics on accidental overdosage. And I think sometimes these accidental overdosages are actually suicides when you look mm-hmm. back in to see how much pain people are in and other problems. My question to you is, how do they determine if something is an accidental overdose or, in fact, a suicide? Do you have to have a note before it's considered a suicide? Wow. Dr. Sutton, do you have a comment? We're both looking at each other. Yeah. That's a really good question, Robert. I, I don't know the, you know, the statistical answer or the medical answer or, you know, factual. But, I'm, you know, I guess you would have to look at a lot of different factors. Of course, if there were a note, that would help. But uh, probably just in a little investigation, Right. You know, there are kids that I've seen that have attempted to take three bottles of pills. And, you know, was it in those cases, yes, a suicide attempt. Sometimes people will say, well, I was just in so much pain. I had taken too much already. I didn't remember how much I had taken. You know, so I don't know. Which can which can happen. Um, so, Robert, you're point is a good one. I will say that in my experience as as I've moved along in this longer life of mine, I think sometimes suicide is such has such a stigma for families, such a negative stigma that there might truly have been like an obvious suicide where someone took a whole bottle of uh, medication that we know can be deadly at overdose, but it's called an accidental overdose because of the negative stigma that everyone feels if they call it a suicide. And and many times family members view it as a failure on their part when it wasn't, as we've talked about. But I think, too, um, you know, in the media all the time, there are all these, quote, accidental overdoses that you hear uh, about these famous individuals. And was that that they were overwhelmed and couldn't take life anymore? Or was it because they were careless in their already substance abuse state and then just over? took more 
than than they should have. Those are those are good questions. Uh, I guess the main thing to know is that prolonged stress is one of those risk factors for suicide, and we we know that um, when you hear of these. Um, accidental overdoses, many times these are individuals who are um, undergoing very prolonged stress. Probably another um, explanation for that maybe is because we're afraid to talk about suicide. Mm-hmm. It's so taboo. A lot of people mm-hmm. feel that if you talk about it, then you may encourage it. We have to talk about it. We have to lessen our fears to say the word suicide. Yeah. yeah, and we will find a lot of nice terms to put on things <laughs> instead of when you're talking to individuals, ask them, you know, do you want to die? Yeah. Is this your intention? Yeah. Because we have to start the conversation. We have to approach it in, in a very direct way if we want to help people. Yeah, Robert, um, you as a physician, I know know this because we um, we have over the years. There's been a lot of research and literature out there looking exactly at what Dr. Sutton's talking about, and that is that it does not increase the likelihood that some will someone will commit suicide if you ask them have they contemplated hurting themselves have they ever thought about leaving this world have they thought i mean you can use whatever euphemism you want but but asking the question have you thought about hurting yourself is really really important so that the discuss you've opened it up and i've been surprised at the number of individuals that I have talked to who have said, yeah, actually I have. Mm -hmm. And then you say, so how have you thought, what have you thought about doing? And Dr. Sutton, if they have a plan, then a big red flag needs to go up and you need to take Mm -hmm. it seriously. I I think gone are the days when we should um, go, ah, they're just attention seeking. Right. Right. I agree. Yes. So you want to take it seriously, um, listen to what they did. If there is an accidental overdose, accidental, in quote, overdose, and uh, the individual survives that, then I think extreme attention needs to go to that also, right? Yes, because that is one of the top risk factors. Uh, Previous attempts or, you know, thoughts, previous thoughts about suicide. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. Well, I agree. I, I just think that a lot of times, that, uh, you know, if someone uses a gun, it's just considered, you know, they don't have to leave a note. But some of the, the accidental overdoses, people don't want to bring up the thought of suicide in their family. So they blame it on, you know, accidental overdosage when it's odd that someone's been using a certain medication for so long. And then, like you say, they take two or three bottles and, right. and they they just don't want to. Because for one thing, there's a there is a you know, people do feel a stigma uh, from it. And, you know, their problems sometimes in, insurance will not pay in some cases if someone takes their own life, you know, uh, in certain policies. So I, I, I guess my point is that I think that suicide is a much bigger problem than we realize mm-hmm. because I think a lot of the accidental overdosages are, in fact, suicide. 
your point is is a good one. Thank you for that, Robert. Thank you for your call. I I do want to emphasize something that Robert said too, as the firearm issue. If you have an individual who who has firearms in the house and they are struggling with depression, the firearms need to be out of the house. They just need to be locked up and away um, because the access to firearms with an individual who is sad, overstressed, and depressed is another risk factor, right? Absolutely. And when we have that conversation, we need to add all of the things that Dr. Butchers just said. Why do you need to lock it up? Why do you need to put it away? And not just leave it open, put it away. Because, you know, there could be issues with how people feel about having their guns in the home, you know, particularly if they're hunters. But we have to explain why yeah, and the risk that's involved. Well, particularly yeah. the handguns. And I think also, um, uh, you know, uh, I just think that uh, uh, you do have to um, uh, talk to them. I think you're exactly right about it there. And uh, there's nothing, you know, it doesn't make anything worse to bring up the subject uh, there. Uh, that uh, and then to follow up on it um, on that. Um, so I appreciate your addressing that, but I, I really never have found a, you know a, a real definition of how coroners call things accidental overdose and how they call it suicide. Because yeah. you say some sound obvious when you take three uh, bottles of pills, but you know uh, sometimes I think those are listed as accidental overdose. Right. So. Right. Good point. We probably need to do better at that. And, um, you know, again, probably some of that has to do with insurance coverage for some and the stigma for some. So, Robert, thanks for your call. Um, I really appreciate it. You added a lot to the conversation. All right. Well, I think we'll go to our final break. And when we come back, we've got open lines now. We're ready for more callers. Give us a call. We'd love for you to join in. We'll talk some more about some of the warning signs of uh, a potential uh, suicide threat. Give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can send an email to family at mpbonline.org. This is Relatively Speaking, and we'll be right back. This way This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back. This is Relatively Speaking. I'm Dr. Susan Buttress here with Dr. Monica Sutton talking about suicide prevention. So what I want to do now is let's let's jump to some of the warning signs. We've talked about risk, but... Um, you know, obvious, there's some obvious warning signs like 
threats or comments about killing themselves, increased um, substance abuse, aggressive behavior, social withdrawal. I think most of us know those, you know, big mood swings, um, writing or talking about death or impulsive or reckless behavior. Now, those are all some really overt signs that I think most of us know about. But then there are some signs of, that really dictate imminent danger, right, Dr. Sutton? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, let's go over a couple of those that are just major red flags. Okay. Well, of course, the number one is hopelessness. If you hear people saying things like, well, I just feel like um, nothing I do helps helps anymore, or nobody is, I feel like nobody is there for me, those are... Uh, maybe subtle statements, but they are huge. Bigger red flags. Bigger red flags. Yeah, for sure. But that would mean we have to listen and we have to be connected to individuals. So changes in behavior, even something as simple as if you usually at a coworker who usually has lunch with you on a regular and they stop or they're not talking anymore or they're just not as... Involved right. socially, yeah. So that social withdrawal is right. a is a big big deal. Okay. Well, we have a couple of callers I want to get to before the end of the show. We have Jane in South Mississippi. Hi, Jane. Thanks for calling. Hi. Talk to us about what's going on with you. So I wanted to talk about the perspective from someone who has been suicidal. Thank you. Um, there was a time in my life, in my 20s, um, I made some poor life choices, shall we say, um, was at a very dark place and was at that point. Wow. People say, I don't understand why anybody would do that. I was there. Mm-hmm. I was ready. I was going to end my life. Wow. So tell me what happened to make that not happen. Thank goodness, Jane, you're here calling. A friend of mine, we grew up together, had known each other since grade school, called me on the phone and just said, because we had not talked in years, we lived in completely separate parts of the country, but he said, I've just been thinking about you, and so I called your mom and I got your number. Wow. And the, the call, had he not called probably when he called, I would not be speaking to you today. Wow. It was, it was really that close. Have you told him that? Yes, many times. Many times. I am so glad. But, Jane, you just pointed out something that we were talking about earlier. I don't know if you heard it on the radio, but we were talking about having that one person reach out and how, you know, you just never know why he reached out to you. But what a wonderful thing. So thank you for calling and reminding everybody, reach out if there's somebody that you're thinking about. It may be because they need you. So do it. And, and uh, my story... Um, and I, I think... Oh, okay. I'm, I'm sorry, Jane. I think um, somehow we got cut off, but we're going to go on to Richard and Biloxi. Hi, Richard. Hi. Hey, thanks for calling. We've got another minute and a half. Tell us what your story is. It won't be. It won't even take that long. I just add on to the, something you quickly mentioned before the break about insurance. Uh, I had my mother 
uh, attempted to commit suicide because of continuous back pain. Mm-hmm. And uh, the ambulance, even though there was notes all over the place and what have you, uh, the ambulance uh, drivers or uh, medics said uh, drug overdose, accidental drug overdose. And uh, in the hospital, the uh, emergency room said the same thing, and it was carried on uh, while she was uh, being treated there. And the purpose of it, I was told, was although Medicare would pay their share of the bill, supplemental insurance won't for uh, suicide. Wow. So that needs to change, doesn't it? That's another area where that's exactly what Dr. Sutton and I were saying at the break is that we probably don't. We're probably looking at the tip of the iceberg because um, so many times there is this mincing of words because of uh, trying to not have some unintended consequences right. of not having coverage. Because as we all know, an emergency room visit is terribly expensive if you have to cover it all by yourself. So. Richard, thanks for pointing that out. And I'd like to thank all of our callers and listeners. And Dr. Sutton, thank you so much for what you do. We will put on our Facebook, I uh, have some numbers. If anybody has anybody who needs help, we have some calling lines, some helplines for um, anybody who is depressed and needs suicide prevention help. So... Thanks, everybody. Today's show was engineered by my producer, Michelle McAdoo. Our call screener was Janet. I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, and I hope you will join us next week for Relatively Speaking. And stay tuned now for NPR's Here and Now, coming up next on MPB Think Radio.